This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So the 1st of August 2021 and uh, last fortnight we were participating in a retreat called Living Without Walls. So this is a continuation of that retreat and that particular inquiry. For those of you who weren't here last fortnight, the um, metaphor of living without walls comes from the translation of the Heart Sutra by a, a guy called Red Pine, and um, where he states, um, Bodhisattvas take refuge in Prajnaparamita and live without walls of the mind. So um, one of the uh, intentions of ordinary mind Zen practice is to try and make these teachings available and accessible in a way in which we can put them into practice into our everyday lives in the cause of the alleviation of suffering. And sometimes the uh, the Heart Sutra can seem quite um, out of reach in terms of its uh, abstractness. So, in that uh, in that spirit of uh, making these teachings relevant to our lived experience, uh, ordinary minds, and particularly my teacher Barry Majid, often draws upon. Um, his practice and uh, understanding of psychoanalysis, but also at times he draws upon his um, his understanding of the tradition of Western philosophy. And um, in many ways, uh, the original teachings of Western philosophy, known as the pre-Socratic teachings, the the teachings in the West prior to Plato. Um, often have a lot in common in some ways with the teachings of the, the Buddha who was teaching around about the same time. So um, in this particular presentation, I'll be drawing upon uh, one of those streams of Western philosophy um, that's sometimes referred to as existentialism um, but none of these philosophers would necessarily identify as existentialists um, but one of the philosophers that's um, informing some of this uh, these these meditations today is a, a very controversial philosopher from the 20th century known as Martin Heidegger Heidegger is controversial because he um, was complicit and participated in the the National Socialism, the Nazi regime, while he was a rector at the university for a few years. 
And there are also traces of anti-Semitism in some of his writings in his notebooks that have been published over the last few years. So he's a problematic philosopher. But nevertheless, um, all of the, uh, the, uh, the main philosophers of the 20th century European tradition, philosophers such as um, Jean-Paul Sartre, Merleau-Ponty, Derrida, Foucault, were all influenced in different ways by Heidegger and, uh, and took his, uh, his uh, philosophy in their own particular left-wing political direction. The reason why Heidegger is of interest uh, to people who practice Zen, and uh, apparently he was quite popular among the Beats in the 60s as well, was there are some of his uh, philosophy seems to have a lot of affinity with uh, Taoism and uh, and the emptiness teachings of, of, of Mahayana Buddhism. And um, and uh, he was very influential in, in Japanese philosophy because of that reason. So rather than just giving a lecture today, I'm going to be introducing some mini meditations as we go along uh, because I um, would like us to explore emptiness or no-thingness or interdependence um, in a more experiential way um, to one of the main problems of the 20th century and 21st century in terms of how we experience ourselves is this notion of the isolated mind or the and uh, in Western philosophy that often would take the form uh, from Descartes onwards like uh, it seemed to be a problem as to how do we experience the external world some philosophers even question the existence of the external world um, Without going into details, Heidegger bypassed that by stating basically that we are always already in the world. So he was quite famous by talking about we are being in the world. We are already in the world and being in the world and participating in the world prior to any representations which create the subject-object duality, which creates all those problems in philosophy such as solipsism or how can I know so Heidegger was concerned more with questions of what's called ontology or the nature of existence or being rather than epistemology or the question of how can I know things. So Descartes started with how can I know anything for certain, whereas Heidegger starts with the question of being or existence. And this is why existentialism was famously summed up by Jean-Paul Sartre when he said that existence is always prior to essence. In other words, if essence is something which is defines what a thing is, um, then what Sartre was saying was that uh, human being does not have any essence. It's, it's open to a lot of possibilities. However, what Heidegger explored was um, the question of, he was interested in the question of being. In other words, he believed that 
we had forgotten and uh, become disconnected from the wonder of just being alive and the question of why is there something rather than nothing, for example. And he came to the conclusion that the only way into that question to explore it and understand it was to actually investigate or inquire into the being that was asking that question. In other words, human being. So Heidegger's famous uh, philosophical text in 1927 was called Being and Time. It's an exploration of what it means to be a human being. And he investigates the universal structures of human beings, such as we all participate in a past, present and future. And we all know that future is finite and there's going to be death at the end of it. This sense of finitude was quite connected to the notion of nothingness or the nothing in Heidegger's philosophy. So Heidegger is interesting because his work can connect in with how do we make this exploration of living in the world in the sense of unit in, in the sense of inseparability or not being separate. In other words, to, it helps us to deconstruct this separate self external world as and then kind of duality that we often find ourselves participating in. So we want to investigate these questions and inquire into these questions, which actually bring about a shift in our way of being in the world in the same way that going on a seven day Zen meditation retreat or a 10 day Vipassana retreat might shift your way of experiencing yourself in the world. So for those of you who have done long meditation retreats, and it's been a long time since I did a long one, you'll probably recall that um, after seven or 10 days of regular meditation every day, there's something, the world shows up in a different way. And um, this showing up is very important in, 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 as a metaphor for how we think about this. Um, in other words, in Heidegger's work, he talks about the inseparability of language, self and world, such that we all live in this world, which is a human world, which is our world, and everything in that world shows up in our world, as do other people show up in our world. And how objects show up and how other beings show up is inseparable from, from our own being. And hence, there's this kind of sense in which the world and the self are inseparable. And uh, at the end, I'll, I'll leave half an hour at the end, like I promised, for an open discussion about whatever, whatever you'd like to share or about this topic, about how we apply the teachings of emptiness uh, into our everyday lives. One understanding that Buddhism and existentialism share is their appreciation of the uniqueness of human being and a focus on the ultimate concerns of what it means to exist as a human being. So Buddhism acknowledges the special status of human beings. 
It's in Buddhism, only human beings can awaken and all states of consciousness in the universe from hellish suffering to divine joy can only be experienced in the human world. Only human beings can hear the call of the Dharma. The fact that we live in the past, present and future with the horizon of the future being finite helps us to motivate our practice, knowing that we only have a certain period of time left to practice. Even if you believe in reincarnation, um, there is still no guarantee that you will be reborn as a human being. Hence, it's still important to seize the day, so to speak. That is why Buddhism speaks of the precious human birth. And there are many metaphors it uses to illustrate and demonstrate the, the absolute good fortune to be born as a human being. Existential philosophy from Heidegger onwards also starts with this inquiry into the, what does it mean to be a human being? And like Buddhism also acknowledges these, the fact that we can experience suffering and also happiness. Uh, um, in Heidegger's work, this, he often talks about angst or a sense of uh, um, existential anxiety about our finitude, about the fact that one day we will die. And, um, but also you'll find something equivalent to how we are able to embrace that and confront that in a sense of an existential awakening as well. Um, and also the way in which we can also try and escape or be become distracted from that. So in the Buddhist myth, the, um, the Buddha grows up in the pleasure palace, so to speak, where he is um, uh, really involved in superficial things and um, lives a life of distraction, a life of leisure, a life of pleasure. And one might, might say he leads an inauthentic existence until he escapes from that world and confronts the, the real world in the sense in which he confronts sickness, old age and death. And that's a wake up call for him. The Buddha himself always taught, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. The final part of the Heart Sutra echoes that when it, they say the mantra heals all suffering. So the Buddha, in a sense, was an early existentialist. He wasn't really concerned with abstract philosophical questions. He wanted to address our ultimate concerns in the same way that existential philosophy uh, is interested in those ultimate concerns. So enough of that. Um, I wanted to say a few things about Zen pedagogy or pedagogy, the methods and practices of teaching Zen. And there's probably quite a few of them, but I came up with uh, four categories, the experiential, the demonstrative, dialogical, the artistic and the philosophical. So for example, we could call, if we took the question, if I took the question and we were investigating the question, what is ordinary mind in the Zen teaching? 
you'll find that question in one of the koans from the gateless gate uh, where the the uh, the monk asked the master you know what is the way or what is ordinary mind what is the Tao well we could explore that question in those four different ways we could explore it through silent sitting or through guided meditations um, so that's an experiential way of exploring that question we could explore it through like a form of experiential inquiry which is what koans are or dialogues or again guided meditations an inquiry often starts with a question and the answer in a koan is 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 not you don't give a um a kind of intellectual answer it's a demonstrative answer in other words um it's more don't tell me show me so for example the student says tell me master what is ordinary mind and the master says would you like a cup of tea so if that lands and the student may have an insight or realization into ordinary mind at that moment this is the uh you'll find lots of those kind of dialogues that's one i just made up but you'll find lots of those kind of dialogues in the the zen tradition the other way in which zen teaches is through poetry visual arts or music so for example you might reply to what is ordinary mind by writing a poem so uh, one of the famous uh, poems in that particular koan is spring comes with flowers autumn with the moon summer with breeze winter with snow when idle concerns don't hang in your mind that is your best season so that's a poem which expresses the the poet's understanding of ordinary mind and finally we might resort to philosophy which is probably um from a Zen perspective, the least effective, but there is still, you'll still find philosophical dialogues in the Zen tradition. So from a philosophical point of view, it might say something like, ordinary mind is the opening in which we experience the manifestation of the interdependence or inseparability of language, self and world. Okay, so I'm, I've, I'm going to start to focus on some mini guided meditations that hopefully will facilitate some experiential openings uh, into the realization of our world as the world of emptiness or relational being. And uh, so I've got a few topics and I won't be able to get through them all, um, but we might revisit some of them later on. Some of the meditations um, I've written myself, some of them I'm going to borrow from a book called Emptiness and Joyful Freedom, written by Greg Good and Thomas Sandon. Okay. Um, so to, to conclude and summarize, both Zen and existentialism invite us to consider the question of who am I? Or we could ask, what is the being of human being? Heidegger suggested that the distinctiveness of human being is that 
it is a, that issue is an issue to a human being. What is it? What is this? What does it mean? What's the meaning of life? Um, human beings can ask that question. We can therefore distinguish human being or human existence from other kinds of beings. For example, beings that we might refer to as a thing, such as rocks and uh, mountains or rivers or cups or hammers. Um, they don't ask this question. Even other sentient beings, such as animals who don't have language, also don't ask that question. So a thing has no awareness of existing. And as far as we know, other sentient beings are not language users. So these guided meditations are designed to facilitate an exploration of this um, experience of being in the world in a way which brings about how both world and being, both world and human being, co-arise together. Okay, the first meditation, I'm just calling it, why is there something rather than nothing? Close your eyes. Imagine the earth before the evolution of, sens of sentient beings. We could say or make a statement that there is land and sea, mountains and rivers, forests and plains, but there are no human beings or no sentient beings even. So there is no sight, sound, smell, taste, or touch, let alone language. Nothing. What does that look like in your imagination? Okay, now an event happens. A tree happens to fall down in the forest. Now remember, there is no sentient being that experiences the falling sound of the tree. What's even more important there is no language to describe the falling tree. So the question to ask yourself is, did this event actually take place? Was there a tree that fell down in the forest if there was no human being to witness that event? Just stay with that question for a couple of minutes. There is no consciousness on the planet that can witness through the senses, through language, a tree falling down. 
Is that an event that actually happens? Now you might think, of course, the event happens. Even though there's no human being there, there's still trees and it falls down. But, word of caution. That particular concept of a tree falling down in a forest only became a possibility when human beings languaged it. In other words, the world, and this was one of Heidegger's fundamental points, the, uh, the world that we take for granted of the, the, the way in which the world shows up to science um, is not independent of the being of human beings. In other words, there would be no science there were no human beings. So it's very difficult to wrap our heads around or visualize the universe prior to human being or prior to being. And uh, this is the point he makes that we never actually experience being with a capital B, but we can only experience being with a capital B through the manifestation of beings, in plural. So this takes me to the second meditation. This one's called the clearing or the opening. <clears throat> okay, just take a moment and have a look around the room you are currently sitting in. What do you notice? You'll notice objects and things. Some things are close to hand that you can use. Do you notice anything else? These objects are revealed as presence in the world to you. Whatever the object may be, it's appearing or manifesting in the world, in your world. Now, very simply, just close your eyes. And what do you notice? Now open your eyes. What do you notice? So when we close our eyes, the visuals of the objects in the room, of course, disappear. When we open our eyes, they reappear.
the objects are appearing because we are being in the world in a way in which those objects can appear. Now, what is it we can't see? What we normally assume is that those objects are kind of like external to us, like in the objective world, and somehow we are in the subjective world and we have names for those objects. But what Zen and existentialism is inviting us to actually discover is those objects are appearing in the nothingness that we are. In other words, the being of a human being is not a thing. You can't see the being of a human being. You can see bodies. If you look in the mirror, you can see people around us in bodies and we are embodied in the world. But the actual being, if you like, you could use metaphors to describe it, is like a light in which everything is, is manifesting or being unconcealed. All those objects are appearing because of the being of human being. We co-arise, we shape the world and the world shapes us. So some objects, some um, experiences in the world like a, a sunset or a flower will have a direct impact on us. And so we have this mutual co-arising inseparability between world. Wherever we go, we take our world with us. So self and world inseparable or being and world inseparable. But we don't know, like a fish swimming in water, we don't appreciate that. So human being has this quality of nothingness or absence. Human being is not a a thing or an object. It is an opening or a clearing in which other beings are able to manifest. So a human being is like a space or a clearing in which beings are unconcealed. So this opening is only possible because we're coming and going from absence or nothingness or emptiness. This is the, this is the creative aspect of absence or nothingness or emptiness. The, uh, Fertile void, as Rees called it. Absence and presence go together. The objects are presencing, but they're only able to presence because of our absence. And we experience absence as tempora temporality, the temporal nature of being, constant change, the flux and flow of life. We are always in movement from past, present, and future into the finite future. When we see this clearly, we see that there's no entity which has a substantial existence apart from that relational flow 
of things co-arising. In a sense, we're more like relational events or happenings than a substance. There's no continuous entity that is born or dies. There's just a series of events or happenings or processes or flow. And we are simply this finite opening into the wonder of this aliveness. Okay, um, the next meditation. Uh, so we'll focus again a bit more on the interdependence of self and world. We'll focus on objects again. Returning to the objects in the room. Uh, for example, a glass or a cup. All these objects have a shape and color, but they're all impermanent and will eventually one day disintegrate. They have no inherent existence. The cup can also be broken down through the dependence on the combination of the various elements that created it, such as the heat and the clay and the water, the clouds in the sky, as Tiknahan might say, the earth itself. The cup is the cup is interdependent, or what Tiknahan called interbeing. Everything is interbeing. There is no separate substantial thing. Also, the object that we know as a cup shows up as a cup in my world, and I, I take it for granted how I'm going to use the cup. I don't have to think about it. I just reach out, grab the cup, and drink. This is another example of how the world is inseparable from ourselves in this way. Um, I'm going to give you another example. Um, this one's called Using a Tool from, from Good and Sanders' book. Look around you and notice a tool such as a pen. Maybe, I mean, a cup could be the same, I guess, but to what use can you put to it? What are some other tools that it refers to? Paper, ink. What are some of the purposes for which you'd use the tool? Writing a diary or a shopping list? Take a few minutes and imagine a typical situation in which you are engaged using this tool. So it could be, for example, um, you start to write something. Do you find that the tool as a separate object disappears into the background of your activity? So as you're writing with the pen, you're just focused on the writing, the, the actual tool itself has disappeared into the background. As you're writing, can you still feel the subject-object split when you're immersed in using the tool? You'll often come across this idea in Zen teaching, such as in Samadhi, when we become totally absorbed in the activity that we're doing as well, from a mindfulness perspective. When we're totally absorbed in washing the dishes, 
or when we're totally absorbed in um, creating a ceramic pot, the, the sense in which the that tot that that subject object duality just falls away. So all objects have a human significance. Take a few minutes and think of any tool-like object that you can think of. Think of a hammer or a bridge or an ambulance and reflect on the meaning and purposes of this object in human life. So do that for a number of objects. Think of a few tool-like objects and reflect on the meaning and purpose in human life. And you'll, you know, you will realize how all those tools are inseparable from what it means to be a human being. Now take a few minutes and think of an object that is not usually considered a tool or even a human creation. So for example, think of a sunset, a rock, a mountain, a river, the moon, Can you even find human significance in these objects? A rock can be a thing of severe beauty or a symbol of intransigence or reliability. A sunset has connotations of romance for many of us. Of course, a realist might say that is a realist is someone who believes in the objective world being there independent of human beings might say that doesn't prove anything. Human significance is only what we add to the object. It is not what we discover in the object. But this is exactly Heidegger's point. We can't think of what he calls this what, what Heidegger calls Dasein or the what we could translate that as the opening of human being. We can't think of the opening and the world as independent of each other. And thereby we can't draw a line between what we discover and what we add. We enter the relationship with the object already thoroughly embedded in all these relationships. The scientific point of view is something which comes later. So objects are dependent upon our relationship to us. A cup or a hammer doesn't show up as a mere physical object, but as equipment to be used. 
All beings that manifest are illuminated by and shaped by language. In this sense, language could be described as the house of beings. No language, no beings. And the limits of our language are in many ways the limits of our world, as Wittgenstein said. Including that mysterious realm that is created by the expression beyond words in the Zen tradition, teaching beyond words. There is no beyond words without words. And the word emptiness points to this beyond words and the word and emptiness itself is empty. Emptiness is not a thing. And we need to be really careful about not reifying emptiness. There is no ultimate fundamental entity called being with a capital B, but we are just in relationship to other beings through this clearing, which has basically no ground. It's absence all the way down. One final couple of more meditations quickly. Um, one on perception. Um, Take a few minutes, look around the room. What do you see? Perhaps a lamp, a chair, a table, a wall. Do you experience them directly and effortlessly? Or does it take any effort? Is there any dividing line between your experience, in your experience between you and the objects? For example, do you find yourself needing to translate a visual shape into a table or do you just simply perceive table? You simply perceive chair, you simply perceive cup. Now close your eyes. What do you hear? Perhaps a fan, a bird or some traffic noises. Again, are these sounds already infinitely close to you in your experience and effortlessly there? Or do you first need to make an effort to translate and distance yourself from the sounds? In other words, perception, even perception is already human being. It's, it's part of our world the world shows up in a certain way when we hear the core core we say that's a crow we don't even have to think about that it's part of the perception of the sound so even sounds show up according to how we language them into being so we are inseparable from the world and the world is inseparable from us. The world depends on human being and human being depends on the world. Finally then, just return to the familiar objects in your room. And this time I want you to see if you can observe the subtle quality of light and color, like they were paintings in a still life by Vermeer. Just 
look at the objects that are so familiar that you don't usually take time to notice. Like the light in the, in the glass of water, the shape of the glass, the reflections in the glass, or even an ordinary object like a cup or a lamp or anything. Just look around the world, look around the room, Notice how all those familiar objects can actually feel wondrous and exotic when we stop and give them our loving attention. When we appreciate them by letting them be in the strangeness of there being something rather than nothing. The wonder of the apple, the glass, the lamp. Now, if you want the uh, a quick way of doing this, just drop about a little bit of LSD. But if you want to go around it in the uh, old fashioned way, it is possible when we pay attention to actually get in touch with, again, the wonder of being here at all, the wonder of how objects manifest themselves and are not separate from us. All right. <laughs>